Uh, good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to get my clock set up so I don't make sure I don't go over too long. Um, yeah, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to begin reading at verse 18. And then we'll read uh, through the end of that chapter. So Exodus 4, 18 through uh, 31. <clears throat> then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, uh, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bride, bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the word, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. And this is God's word. Please pray with me. And great God in heaven, uh, there are certain passages in Scripture that um, that they, they both challenge certain things that we hold dear, and and they also confuse and intrigue us because they present things that are that are actually really foreign to us in space and time and, and, and for our culture, Lord. Uh, we still believe, though, that your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, so we ask God for your guidance today. May we approach your word with humility, Lord, with reverence for who you are and how you show yourself to us. God, you are merciful and just, so be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One day last spring... Uh, Melanie, I think she's the one who saw it first. She looked out in our backyard and she noticed that our dog Jack was uh, playing with something. And the thing that he was playing with didn't actually move like a normal toy. It seemed to be a bit more lifelike, actually. So one of us went out to investigate. I don't remember which one went out first. It was me. Yeah, I got sent on that one. Uh, I saw that Jack uh, had managed to nab a little uh, adolescent bird. I think it was probably trying to fly, and, and he grabbed it. Um, 
it, it still had its soft little spotty feathers and it was still very much alive when I got to it, uh, but it was in pretty poor shape. Uh, if it had been able to fly at one point, it definitely couldn't any longer and never would. Both of its legs were maimed and broken and it just sort of flopped around on the ground. And since it was clear that it really didn't have any chance of surviving, I did the most logical thing I could think of, and I ended its life as quickly as I could. Um, in other circumstances, if it weren't so badly injured, I might have been able to uh, nurse it back to health. Um, and if you'll go with me for a moment for my opening illustration, I usually don't like to make up stories for opening illustrations or any illustration. But I couldn't think where else to go with this one. <laughs> because, uh, well, you'll see why. I want you to think of another scenario where I find the same bird, but I'm able to nurse it back to health. But I'm such a masterful bird doctor. I don't know what kind of veterinarian that would be. Uh, that uh, I nurse it back to health in such a way that it flies better than it ever could have. And when anyone sees this bird flying in the sky, they know that I'm the one who fixed it. Um, it has uh, colorful rainbow feathers instead of the, the dull brown and gray ones. I gave it a glow-in-the-dark beak, maybe. Um, ev everyone knows when, uh, when that bird flies by, maybe I named it Harold even. They, they say, hey, there, go there goes Harold. And uh, they know that that's the bird that I fixed. Um, this is kind of a funny thing, though. Because what I just described is two situations. One in which the bird was too maimed and I had to snap its neck. The other where the, the bird I was able to fix and I sent it flying off high in the sky. And yet, this, this same situations, uh, this, same, this same bird, uh, I'm sorry, both situations can be described with the same word. There, there are very few words that we can use to describe actions both that would end a life and actions that try to preserve a life. But here you have it. There is such a word that describes both of those scenarios, and that word is mercy. The word is mercy. If I, if I see that the bird is uh, definitely going to suffer its last dying moments, I want to kill it quickly. If I think I can save it, I mercifully... Uh, nurse it back to health. The word mercy describes both being able to kill something quickly and being able to nurse it back to health. Now, the, the word mercy is a word that gets tossed around a lot in church. We hear it all the time. I have at times casually defined mercy as uh, just not getting what you deserve. I say grace is getting what you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Uh, and that works okay when you're talking about some sort of judgment or grievance or something. But mercy can also speak uh, very generally of, of compassion, can't it? Or, or pity for someone. It's not just sadness towards someone and what they're going through. But mercy has to do with the ability to act on your compassion. Um, well, why bring up this word mercy? Um, there are plenty of places in the Bible that talk about mercy explicitly. And guess what? Exodus 4 we just read it, it's not one of them. Uh, it, it, the word mercy doesn't even appear in the passage. 
And yet, for all, all the silence on mercy in Exodus 4, it, it really is, is everywhere there. And, and I hope to show you why. I'm going to take a diversion for a second. Uh, about two hours ago, I was trying to uh, practice a sermon, and, and the, the man who taught me how to preach, my pastor a, a long time ago, would always tell me, Brian, you have to land the plane. If you don't land the plane, uh, you, you, the, the sermon will not go well. And unfortunately, I was practicing this even a couple hours ago, and I couldn't land the plane. It kept crashing. And so what I tried to do is I, I, took, I took the thing that I was trying to do to land the plane, and I put it at the beginning. And I, I want to share that with you now. And I, I kind of figured this, that a crashing plane is more dangerous than one that never takes off. So I'm going to take that thing I put at the end. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to mention it at the beginning now, and we'll hope it goes somewhere. If it all feels convoluted, welcome to Exodus chapter 4. So uh, uh, I want to say something before we go on to talk about mercy, okay? Uh, I, I want to introduce something to you that you may have heard of, um, you may not have heard of, and it's called the marks of the church. The marks of the church is not something that comes explicitly from the Bible, but the reformers in the 16th century started talking about these things that made the church recognizable that were different from what the Roman Catholic Church said made the church recognizable. See, the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century thought it, 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 it they said the church was recognizable as long as any local church or, or the church generally had fellowship with Rome, with the Pope. And the Protestant reformers rejected this because they'd seen so many errors of the Pope and they'd seen the fallibility of, of human authority. And instead, they insisted that the Bible was the only authority for Christians. They said that the, uh, 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 this is from the uh, Belgic um, Confession, um, and I'll, I'll read it to you and then, and then try to explain it. There are three marks in the church that the, re the Reformers identified. Uh, that is things that, uh, that, is things that um, make the church recognizable, okay? And that is either the universal church or a local church. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, so you have gospel preaching, one. If she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ. So you have sacraments, two. Okay, gospel preaching, one. Sacraments, two, like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. Uh, and uh, three, if, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin. In short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected. That is, anything that is against the word of God is rejected. And Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. That's, that's, that's the marks of the church, okay? Preaching the word, the sacraments, and, and discipline. Um, why would I bring that up? Well, as we're working through Exodus, we're, we, we've been talking about gifts that God gives to his people. And there's something implied about the kind of gifts that we're talking about in Exodus. God is very good to everything that he created. But he loves his people in a special way. It's not even, and I say it was implied, it's, it's made explicit many times throughout Exodus. God loves his people in a special way. He loves everyone in the world, but he loves his people in a special way. He gives gifts to, to everything, and he, and he supplies all of creation with good things, but he gives special gifts to his people. He gives special gifts to his people. One of the gifts that he gives to his people 
is mercy. Special mercy. He gives mercy to his people in a, in a way that he, doesn't not, that he doesn't give it to anyone else. Uh, on the one hand, God's people always respond to God's mercy. On the other hand, God's, God's mercy is always extended to his people. And this is not true for those who are not good, God's people. people uh, those who are outside of God's community, his children, they don't respond to his mercy. And he doesn't extend mercy to them in the same way he does to his own people. You can't be a child of God if you haven't received his mercy. If you have received his mercy, then certain things will be true. And that's why I brought up the marks of the church. It's not because a church that just preaches good sermons and baptizes people and serves bread and wine or grape juice is automatically a, a true church. But there is no true church that doesn't do those things. And one of the main things that God will always communicate in his word through preaching, through the sacraments, through discipline, is mercy. Without mercy, then at church we're just pretending. Without mercy being preached, without mercy being communicated in the sacraments, without mercy in church discipline, we're just pretending. We haven't received mercy, and we have no mercy to give. That is a very long intro. So let's come back to the story of Moses now. You'll remember from last week uh, that Moses had just been given a mission by God. And he's not really interested in doing this mission. God met him in the wilderness and told him that he had heard his people's cry from Egypt. That he was going to rescue his people and bring them into the land. And Moses was going to be sent to bring his people out of the land. And all of these were promises that he had made to Abraham some 400 years ago. Uh, at first, Moses doesn't know God's name, and God tells him, my name is Yahweh. Moses doesn't think the people will believe him, so God gives him uh, some miracles to perform. Uh, Moses says he's not a good speaker, so God gives him uh, a mouthpiece and his brother Aaron. Moses does not want to go. He doesn't want to be God's chosen instrument to, to, to help God's people get out of Egypt. He doesn't want to go, so he comes up with a lot of excuses. Well, we come to our passage today, there's actually another thing that, that was holding Moses back that he hasn't mentioned yet, but God knows it's there, and God brings it up. He knows that Moses doesn't want to go back because Moses ran away from Egypt as a fugitive. And Moses is afraid to go back because he doesn't want to get killed. And so God says, after addressing all of the other excuses that he has, God says, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. Um, so now he's really left without any excuses, isn't he? He's left without any excuses. He, he needs to go back. So what does Moses do? We're about to cover, the last, the last chapter and a half has been covering a, a fairly short period of time. And now, over these next few verses that we're talking about today, we're about to cover a lot longer period of time. We're going to kind of run, run through a lot of things that happen now. Moses sets out with his family. 
and he sets out with the staff that God had given him. This was, this was a, a, visible, a visible sign that God had given him to remind Moses of his power and his presence. Okay, So it says he sets out with the staff of God. And God uh, speaks to him again with some uh, very specific instructions after that. And some, some insight for, things, for how things are going to turn out. It says that the Lord says to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform uh, before Pharaoh all the wonders that I've given you the power to do. Okay, so first he's supposed to go to Pharaoh. Now this is, this is a pretty tall order. Pharaoh is actually a king of a very big nation. Moses is now just a shepherd in Midian. Usually, people don't just walk in off the street and go straight to the leader of even a tiny nation, let alone an empire that was Egypt. But God tells Moses, first go to, go to Pharaoh. Um, this doesn't actually seem like a great way to organize a revolt either. I mean, if we're honest, does it? Go straight to the leader of the, of, of the people uh, and let him know that you're about to try to get everyone out of there. It doesn't seem very smart, but this, these, are, these are God's instructions for Moses. Perform the signs for Pharaoh, and then I will keep Pharaoh from doing, giving you what you want. This is a great plan. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, so that Pharaoh will refuse to let the people go. And after Pharaoh refuses it, don't worry, I will kill Pharaoh's son. <clears throat> now, uh, um, there's probably been a time in every one of our Christian lives, if you're a believer in Jesus, where you read passages like this, and all kinds of questions pop into your head. These are the kinds of passages that people who scorn Christ, who scorn Christianity, who scorn the Bible, they read passages like this and they say, this is why. This is why we hate it. Because there are too many things that don't add up here. They're going to come up a lot in Exodus, so I'll try not to spend too much time on them, but, but we might as well say them. One, if God has these like mind control powers over Pharaoh, why not just change his mind? <laughs> if God can control what Pharaoh wants to think and do, why, why would God set Pharaoh's heart against what God's trying to accomplish, which is to get his people out of Egypt, to redeem his people from Egypt. One, maybe you thought of that. Two, is God causing someone to sin here? It's not right to go against God's will. And it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Is, is God causing someone to sin? sin? That, does, that doesn't seem right, does it? Three, what does Pharaoh's kid have anything to do with this? Pharaoh's the one who hardens his heart. God says, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then says, because you hardened your heart, I'm going to kill your child. How much sense does this make to us? Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's son is not the one holding the Israelites hostage. We could easily spend an entire sermon or two or three on every, every portion of this chapter, Okay. <laughs> And, I, and so I'm going to try to get through it quickly and just and highlight a few things. And don't worry, these, these, this whole hardening of Pharaoh's heart thing, it's going to come up over and over and over again. And John will have to preach it all. I won't have to preach as much of it. So, uh, 
first, let's ask, if, if God could theoretically just get Pharaoh to do the right thing, why go, why go through all the trouble of bringing Moses in? There's probably a handful of different ways we can answer the question, but let me just simplify it in this way. Uh, this is the way that Paul simplifies it in Romans. Here's the, here's the basic answer. We come to passages like this and we have all these questions. Why, why, why? God, this doesn't seem right. And here's Paul's answer in uh, Romans. It's God's world and he can make himself known in whatever way he chooses. He can do whatever he wants. And he will always do it for his glory and, the, and for the good of his people. Isn't that a nice answer? Why God, why God, why God? Because I said so. If you're Job in the Old Testament, this answer is actually good enough for you. <laughs> but it takes a whole lot of struggle. And yet the same answer is rarely good enough for us. It's rarely good enough for us. But in fact, there are more answers there. And, and we don't even have to stop at that point in this, in this text to get more answers. Uh, let's, uh, let's ask another question, though. Um, is God causing someone to sin? Is he making Pharaoh sin? How can Pharaoh be held responsible for something that God is doing to him if God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Well, there are several different Hebrew words behind this concept of hardening the heart. And they all capture the same sense. Uh, it, it has to do with stubbornly kind of strengthening your will in place, digging your hills in, if you will, staking your claim, not moving. So it's not as if God must uh, hardwire or hijack Pharaoh's heart with stubborn hatred. It's already there. God doesn't have to add anything to it. It, it already lives there. And remember as well that this passage is telling Moses something that's going to happen. This hasn't happened yet. Moses, God is telling Moses things that, are, that will happen in the future, okay? Now, as we move on in Exodus, what do you find? That, that five or six times before it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart in the moment, it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's worth remembering. Pharaoh is hardening his own heart for the first handful of miracles, and then it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Okay? So, let me ask you this. Is it, is it Pharaoh or is it God? See, the Bible sees no conflict between these two things. The conflict is for, is for us. It's, it's not in Scripture. Most of the time, the Bible doesn't even feel like it has to explain these things. Why? Because in the Hebrew mind, and it ought to be this way in our mind, there's no conflict between the fact that God rules over, controls, sovereignly reigns over everything in creation, and that we, people on the earth, are responsible for our own actions. Scripture sees no conflict there whatsoever. We feel a conflict. Scripture says there's no conflict. Why explain something that doesn't need to be explained? But how can it be that God would do this, though? Still, even, even if you see no conflict there, why would, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why would he make people sin and then punish them for their actions? It seems unfair. Even if some questions will never be answered, this is not one of them. 
I mentioned Paul talking in Romans earlier. In, in chapter 9, Paul has an answer to this very thing. He addresses this very issue, talking about Pharaoh and whether or not it's fair for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. Paul says, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And then he goes on a couple verses later. And I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation, so it might sound unfamiliar, but I think it states it in the simplest way. God has the right to show his anger and his power, Paul says. This is uh, verse 22. God has the right to show his anger and his power. He's very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. Let me paraphrase it in this way. God did not have to do anything to Pharaoh's heart in order to harden it, except withhold mercy. All God had to do was withhold mercy from Pharaoh, and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart would take care of itself. I have, if I have some soft bread in my kitchen, and I want to make that bread extra crispy, there are a couple ways I could do it. One, I could put it in the toaster and push the button down. And the heat will heat it up, and it will make that bread nice and crispy. The other thing I could do is just take it out of the bag and leave it on the counter. And what will happen? Over a number of days, it's just going to get hard, and it's just going to get crispy. It might not be the same quality, but you get my point. God doesn't have to do anything to make Pharaoh more against him than he is already on the trajectory to become. All he has to do is not show Pharaoh mercy. Pharaoh might well have been uh, further down the road than others, but the human heart is not a neutral playing field. Nowhere in Scripture does, does it say that every human heart is just a blank slate, you know, waiting to be either drawn to one side or the other. We're not just neutral characters walking around with a, with a demon on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and who we, who we listen to at any given time will dictate where we go. That's not actually how it is. Pharaoh's just an example of the state that every human being is in apart from God. And it's only God's mercifully restraining evil that keeps all of us from spiraling out of control. Pharaoh is really just a great example of what can happen when God allows evil just to run its course and does not divinely insert his mercy. But even this, even when God doesn't interrupt the hardness of someone's heart with his own mercy, even this doesn't triumph over his purposes. God's, gonna, God's even going to use Pharaoh's wickedness for his own purposes. So this is the first indicator of receiving God's mercy for you and I. If you've received God's mercy, you won't harden your heart against it. If you've received God's mercy, you're not going to harden your heart against it. Have you ever talked to someone, or maybe you've said at certain times in the past, 
oh, I believe in God, but I just don't want to change what I'm doing right now. I don't want to change my actions right now. But that's not actually how this works. You see, when you're hardening your heart against God, it's because you haven't received his mercy. Now, that's a very simple way to put it. I recognize that as Christians, sometimes the Christian life feels a little bit like this. But speaking in general terms, someone who has received God's mercy does not harden their heart against him. Well, there's another key to understanding this passage. God is not uh, talking about how he's going to toy or play around with Pharaoh. God's laying claim to his own people. This is the first uh, passage in scripture where God talks about all of Israel as his firstborn son. Pharaoh has kidnapped God's child and locked him up. And God is coming to get him back. Pharaoh thinks that Israel is his servant, but actually Israel is God's servant. Pharaoh's going to God will God's going to show Pharaoh in every way, not just that Israel is his special possession, and that they will be his people, and, and he will be uh, his God. I think I said that in the backwards way. God is going to show Pharaoh in every way, not just that Israel is his special possession, but also that they are going to be his people and he will be their God. He's going to show Pharaoh that he owns and controls everything. And he wants Moses to pass this message along, this very, very strong message to Pharaoh. If you don't give me my child back, I'm going to take yours. That's what God says to Pharaoh. You give me my son back or I'm going to take yours away from you. So even though, even though his mercy is not mentioned in the passage, uh, you can see that it's there. This is where God draws a line between his people, to whom he shows mercy, and others. So let's uh, jump from one hard passage in Scripture to another. Why not? Why not just cram them right next to each other? Number two, you're not going to reject... I, I talked about the marks of the church. I want you to think of it in this way. Pharaoh was preached to... And he hardened his heart. Just remember that. Pharaoh was preached to and he hardened his heart. Okay? Number two. If you have received God's mercy, you're not going to reject his sacraments. Sacraments are not mentioned, it would seem, in this passage. But listen, just, just, just bear with me for a second. You're not going to reject his, his sacraments and you will respond to his discipline. <clears throat> if God does not give us mercy and if it's not applied to us, we're not any better off than Pharaoh. Moses and his family set off on their journey. And at a lodging place along the way, what happens? God decides he's going to kill Moses. Zipporah wakes up, realizes it's going to happen, circumcises the boy, bloody flaps of skin waving around, weird sayings about bridegroom of blood. Like, I don't ever want to have to say the word foreskin again in a sermon. <clears throat> I've said it twice, I'm not going to say it again. I will use euphemisms for the rest of the sermon if I have to. It's just that, it's that strange for us. Um, it's that bloody. Uh, it's, it's that gruesome, skin being chopped off. Uh, and at the end of the passage, what, I mean, it's this gruesome passage, and then nobody, nobody even dies. Uh, and it's a baffling passage, and it's baffled a lot of people over many years for a number of reasons. Um, a couple things about this passage. Moses' name does not appear anywhere in the passage. 
it's, it reads that way in the English translations, but in Hebrew it's only pronouns. It means that we don't even know if, if the passage is actually talking about Moses here, that God's going to kill Moses. It's just as likely that the passage is saying God's coming to kill Moses' son. I don't even know why I would bring them up. Why would I bring that up? That, that's so much more messed up than God just killing Moses. Why, why, why even bring it up? It actually makes a lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense for this passage to be where it is in Scripture, strangely inserted in this narrative, if actually we're talking about God coming to kill Moses' own son. Why? What's going on in the passage? Moses' son is not circumcised yet. Circumcision was God's covenant sign for his people. It was a sign of faith that he gave to Abraham that would distinguish his people from others around them. And Moses' son is not circumcised. Even though it says in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, this is the covenant between you and I, circumcision. If you don't circumcise your people, your sons, they will be cut off. Any uncircumcised male is supposed to be cut off from God's people. You see why it makes more sense that God would be coming after Moses' son? Moses' son isn't circumcised. He's supposed to be cut off from God's people. Whether it's Moses or his son that God is after actually doesn't matter that much for our understanding of this passage. And here's why. God is making something very clear to Moses. Okay? Whether, he, whether he's coming after Moses' life or he's coming after the life of his son, he's coming after him in judgment. Because Moses has broken God's covenant by not circumcising his son. This outward sign of an inward reality, even though God has met Moses at a burning bush, called him to rescue his people, Moses hasn't even submitted to God's very simple instructions to apply this sign of the covenant to his children. If anyone refused the sign of God's covenant, it was like saying that God hadn't actually made any promises. And since the sign of the covenant was refused, the uncircumcised was to be cut, cut off from God's people. That is this, let me put it this way. Cut or be cut. <laughs> cut or be cut. Take the covenant sign or get cut off from your people. And here we have Moses. He has not circumcised his son. And God's coming along telling him, one of you is going to die because of it. And mercifully, Zipporah realizes what's going on. She's not even a Hebrew. She's a Midianite. The only reason she knows how to circumcise a little boy is because her dad is a priest in Midian. And Midian was actually one of Abraham's sons through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. So the Midianites actually did circumcise their own children. See how much 
And now this is that much harder because, because even when Moses was living among the Midianites, he didn't circumcise his own kid. And his wife, who's not even an Israelite, has to come and do it for him. Mercifully, they get better. No one dies. And I, I, I don't have time to go into the bridegroom of blood thing, but that's okay. I can tell you without a doubt that there is not a single commentator who agrees on anything about what those three words mean anyway. Uh, take it at that. Uh, so God's, God has just foreshadowed a time when he would make a, a distinction between his own son, Israel, and Pharaoh's son, okay? And then he practically applies that in Moses' life. If I'm going to make a distinction between those who are my people and those who are not my people, then when I tell my people to make a distinction, they better do it. And if they don't, I will cut them off. I'm going to jump forward a little bit because I am running way over on time. You remember that I brought up at the beginning of the sermon the marks of the church. So the preaching of the word, the sacraments, and discipline. Now I'm not any, in any way implying that God was trying to uh, insert the marks of the church into this passage. But what I am saying is that they are all there. You could call them shadows of what was to come. The preaching of the word is meant to harden or soften people's hearts. That's what it does. That's how God brings people to himself. They, they, they hear the word and they believe. Or they hear the word and they're hardened. And you see both things going on in this passage. At the beginning of the passage with Pharaoh, at the end of the passage, what did we read? That Aaron and Moses, after they meet up, tell God's people everything that God had said, and they bow down and worship. So when the word is preached, it either hardens or it softens. It hardens those for whom, to whom God has not shown mercy, has not shown mercy, and it softens those who are objects of God's mercy. The visible word that is the sacraments, that is, that is the, uh, the, the word of God uh, in, in a physical way, okay? That means that when we, when we baptize uh, a person or we take the elements, we are acknowledging in a physical way that God nourishes us through faith and in his word, and baptism shows us God's salvation in this physical representative way that he's, that he's saved us from our sins. And the Lord's Supper shows us in this physical way that he's always with us and he's always feeding us and nourishing us. That we're part of his family and that he'll never let us go. That's the second mark of the church present in this passage. And the last one, discipline. What happens in discipline in the church? When someone, there's one side of discipline that's very positive. That's just teaching people more about God's word. 
There's another side of discipline that we think of as just negative, right? And that is when, uh, when one of God's children is in rebellion, it's the responsibility of the church to bring that person back. And hopefully, because mercy is extended to that individual, they repent and come back to the fold. But what happens if they don't? don't? They're cut off. You may have seen someone in your church at some point excommunicated. That's all it is. They may have even received a sign of the covenant in baptism, and yet that is just acting as a mark against them because they're rebelling against God. And they've rejected God's mercy And so they're cut off from the fellowship of God. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that God marks his people with mercy. And that means that that, that mercy is evident in the lives of his people. And the way he makes it evident in the life, one of the ways he makes mercy evident in the life of his church is through the preaching of his word and the sacraments and through discipline. Unfortunately, and this is where I'll end, we're always, we, we are all always seemingly looking for something more than what God has given us. We hear about these people in Israel getting miracles and then believing, and we say to God, I would believe if you just showed me some miracles. I would totally follow you if you just gave me what they got. Have you ever said this? Have you ever thought this? God, it would be a lot easier for me to follow you if you would just do something really spectacular because that seems to be the only thing that's going to fix my life right now. We think think that we want to dictate to God the ways that he shows us his mercy. And yet here is how he's shown it to you. He's given you his word. Miracles are a special thing even in Scripture, just like John talked about. But the Word is very, very consistent. And that's what He's given you to show you His mercy. He's always showing you a picture of Jesus at the cross by showing you baptism and by bringing you to the table. And He's showing you His mercy. He's even showing you His mercy in how we interact with one another through discipline at the church. So why, I ask you, are we always asking for something more than what he's given us? Why are we always asking for something more? Let's pray together. God, uh, what a difficult passage of scripture. Um, I couldn't even say everything uh, that was in front of me to be said. Um, What's clear, God, is that you extend special mercy to your people and that you've given us everything that we need today in order to receive your mercy. So we pray to you today, God, show us your mercy in what you have given us in these very, very ordinary means of grace, God. When we we come to your word, Lord, may it be expecting to see the mercy that you always are applying to your children. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.